Have you heard you can listen to your favorite gripping investigations ad-free? Good news! With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free. Or go to amazon.com slash ad-free true crime. That's amazon.com slash ad-free true crime to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. It's been described as one of the most heinous crimes in Quad City history. But it took nearly 30 years, three guilty verdicts, two state appeals approved, one hung jury, and one more to convict Stanley Liggins. By 2019, the trials seemed to drag on and somewhat of a waste of taxpayer money. Most of the witnesses and those who would testify in this case were dead besides Liggins. Numerous lawyers, different judges, held in three separate counties. It just seemed never-ending, and even today it's so hard to break down everything that has ever been presented and all that took place nearly three decades ago. But what was missed? In all the lawyer speak and basic reporting is that a young girl was viciously and brutally murdered. A family who sat in courtroom after courtroom, hoping, wishing, and praying that this, this would be the last trial, the last jury selection, the last deliberations that they would sit through to fully have justice for the nine-year-old they lost in 1990. It took nearly 30 years, but hopefully the family of Jennifer Lewis finally has justice. Tribune Audio Network. The crimes that made your skin crawl. The missing faces you just couldn't get out of your head. The questions that never got answered. Missing and Murdered in the Midwest dives deep into these unforgettable cases, solved and unsolved. This content is not for the faint of heart. And now, here's your host, Toria Wilson. September 1990, described as a warm, still summer-like day, nine-year-old Jennifer Lewis was a fourth-grade student at a local Rock Island elementary school. She was just days away from hitting double digits, 10 years old. To those who knew her, say she was a warm and bubbly girl and a bit of a tomboy. Just like Trudy Appleby, her picture is just innocent. In the school photo that has circulated for years is either grainy or black and white, but her shirt is very plain, something a mother would want to pick out for a school photo shoot, nothing too flashy. Her hair looks freshly washed, and it whips out near the ends. Her smile is a little forced, but you can tell when she really meant to smile, she would smile for the whole world to see. Just pure innocence. And I think that's what makes this case so hard, especially for the way in which she was murdered. The last time Jennifer was seen alive was September of 1990. Jennifer left her house around 6 that summer-like night to go to a nearby liquor store to get a pack of gum. Her mother says she became worried when the streetlights came on and Jennifer had not returned home. Three hours later, three miles away, Outside of Davenport Elementary School, a custodian stumbled upon a fire and a dead body. Hours after the scene had been found by police and reporters, and still not knowing who the identity was of the child, officers fingerprinted what they could, with one officer saying they could only get so much with one hand, 
as the others were consumed. Her fingerprints matched the one on her textbook. A medical examiner's report states Jennifer was raped and strangled to death. She died within minutes. Her killer poured gasoline on her body, focusing mostly on the genital and pelvic area. Wrapping her remains in plastic, left a trail of gasoline to a nearby brush, lit it, which in turn lit Jennifer's body on fire. Jennifer, age nine, would be laid to rest in a Rock Island cemetery on her 10th birthday. Her family lived in poverty and could not afford a headstone at that time. Two days later, a family friend of Jennifer's mom and stepfather, Stanley Liggins, was questioned in the case. According to reports, Liggins became friends with the family after Jennifer's stepfather was in jail. Her mother sold drugs for Stanley to make ends meet. Even after his release from jail, Stanley was a frequent visitor of the family household. In 1990, Stanley is 28 years old. But Stanley is no fresh peach. He's a hardened criminal, even at the age of 28. He served more than seven years in a Mississippi prison for armed robbery, and while in prison, he was charged with first-degree murder of another inmate. Miraculously, his lawyers were able to say he acted in self-defense. But even when he arrived at the Quad Cities, he was not a changed man. One month prior to facing questions over the disappearance and death of Jennifer, Liggins was charged with fondling a girl under the age of 13 in Milan, not too far from over from Rock Island. According to another podcast, which I highly recommend for more details in his case, is called Suspect Convictions. 23 investigators were put on this case through the Davenport Police Department. 10,000 pieces of evidence was collected. And even though nothing physically linked Stanley Liggins to this crime, he was arrested and charged with kidnapping, rape, and murder. Between the arrest and before the first trial for the death of Jennifer, Stanley is convicted in a Rock Island County courtroom for the sexual assault of a young Milan girl. He was sentenced to seven years for that case, and later another three was tacked on for an assault on another inmate. In February 1993, the trial began. A timeline laid out. A week before the murder, a witness stated that they saw Liggins in his car a block away from the Glenn household talking with Jennifer. On the day of the murder, Liggins came by the house at around 5.30 that night. About a half hour later, Jennifer's stepfather told her she could ride her bicycle to a friend's house. Minutes later, Liggins excused himself and left the Glen home. A neighbor testified she saw Liggins drive his car and stop before motioning Jennifer over to his car. The two spoke, then Jennifer and Liggins parted away, both returning home a short time later. Liggins then asked Jennifer to go to the store and get some gum for him, which she did, and left the home once more. Liggins then left shortly after that. During the trial, witnesses near the elementary school saw a foreign car near the building. You see, this wasn't some old American sedan. It was a 1983 Pigot, a boxy French model car with one big difference, square taillights. One witness described them, with one being slightly brighter than the other. Others say they saw the car near the scene of the crime. 
To show the jury how this car was different from any other regular sedan, Scott County prosecutors brought in a splice car into the courtroom. A neighbor of Stanley's testified the day after the crime, the car reeked of gas with a gas can in the back of the seat. The state also pointed out that the back seat had been recently washed. Ligon's then-girlfriend testified they shared the car, and days after the crime, the car also reeked of gasoline. The defense tried to argue that the witnesses who saw the car near the crime scene couldn't positively identify the car itself, and even tried to dispute one of the witnesses' timelines of the event. Ligon's also tried to claim that because one of the witnesses was three blocks away, couldn't see the taillights with guarantee. The defense also stated that the backseat was wet because of a crack in the vehicle, which let rain seep in. Ligon's also pointed out again there's no physical evidence linking him to this crime. When the jury first got a hold of this case, it took them seven hours to come to the conclusion that they did. Guilty on almost all counts. The only one, not arson. He was sentenced a month later to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Around this time, then-Governor Terry Branstad tried to use this case to bring back the death penalty in the state, but that push failed in the legislature. This case, though, would not stick, the first of many, with the courts stating it was actually the testimony of the parents that unwound Stanley Ligon's first conviction. In November of 1994, the Iowa Supreme Court ruled entering drug crime information not directly related to the murder case itself, unfairly prejudiced the jury against Liggins, with the parents admitting they sold cocaine for Liggins. The high court also ruled the state did not prove without reasonable doubt that the kidnapping and rape took place in Iowa. Less than a year later, June of 1995, Liggins' case was moved out of Scott County to Dubuque due to pre-trial publicity. Ligon's defense team also stated they could not get a fair jury pool due to Scott County having a 1% African-American population and he being black. Even moving to Dubuque, though, had its challenges. The first jury seated in his 1995 trial were all white, even the alternatives. Before formal trial proceedings began, Ligon's created a stir over this, later apologizing, fearing that he would be only convicted because he is black but more outbursts would happen throughout this trial. According to the Des Moines Register, a witness testified he saw Liggins outside that liquor store where Jennifer went to go get that bubble gum. That witness, though, happened to be an inmate in the Scott County Jail on unrelated charges, but had been willing to testify, even give a polygraph. From the defense table, though, Liggins began to shout, Didn't you fail that lie detector test? Despite the outburst, the prosecution brought back the old car for evidence. The defense trying once again to poke holes in the prosecution's case, bringing up that there's no physical DNA evidence linking Liggins to any crime. A former cellmate of Liggins also testified in this case, stating Liggins had bragged about killing Jennifer, but the prosecution tried to make it out that the cellmate was only testifying in exchange for a lighter sentence, which he ultimately denied. This second trial also brought up another potential suspect, according to the defense, Jennifer's stepfather. Ligon's lawyers argued a man with a similar description was near the scene of the crime, a man with a leather jacket and a ponytail. The defense stated that the jacket, though, was sold to a pawn shop and was bought by a man living in Tennessee. 
WVIK's podcast, though, found that similar jacket was worn the day of Jennifer's funeral. Liggins refused to take the stand, and on the end of the second two-week trial, the second jury came back with the same conclusion as the first, guilty. And so it seemed this second trial would finally put this case to rest. Finally, Lewis's family can try and find some peace. Two years later, an Iowa Supreme Court upheld Ligon's conviction, and he stayed in the Fort Madison prison. There's a part of me that wishes that this could have been the end of this case. A man is sent to jail, a family can try and move on with the memory of Jennifer, but this wouldn't be a crime podcast, now would it? So what do you think of when I say special master? Dungeons and Dragons? S&M? A golfer? (laughs) Well, all of those answers are totally and completely wrong, probably. But what I'm talking about is a special investigator aimed at looking at documents within a case. This special master found, after the fact, 77 police reports that the prosecution never shared with the Liggins defense and learned a key witness was also a paid informant. Court records show this paid informant participated in nearly 80 drug buys for law enforcement, including Davenport Police. This is the same person who tied Ligon's car near the day of the crime scene. Another witness also reportedly received a decent plea agreement in exchange for his testimony, despite stating in the two previous trials that that didn't happen. So once again, the Iowa Supreme Court ruled in favor of Ligon's stating that the prosecution failed to live up to its responsibility by disclosing all evidence, and a new trial was ordered. That was November of 2013. The summer of 2018, a third jury could not reach a unanimous verdict, which resulted in a hung jury. The trial lasted more than three weeks. But compared to the first two trials, a more diverse pool of jurors was selected. It might have helped that the case was once again moved due to pretrial publicity, being held in Waterloo, Iowa this time. 62 witnesses were called, or their previous testimony was read in court. The testimonies that were read were either from people who had died, couldn't attend, or couldn't be found. And that included Jennifer's stepfather, who fell off the map after Jennifer's mother and him divorced. So, as you're following along, here's a brief recap. Jennifer was murdered in 1990. Stanley Liggins was ultimately charged for her death. He was convicted in both 1983 and in 1995, with both cases being overturned. In 2018, his third trial ended in a hung jury, and now in 2019 was the fourth trial, nearly 30 years since the original crime took place. Could a jury be persuaded without any doubt that this is the man behind this nine-year-old's brutal death? Just days before the case was expected to begin, Ligon's new lawyers tried to get the case thrown out because of that evidence founded by the special master. There is no, nothing hidden, there's nothing new, there's nothing recently exposed, there's nothing that doesn't exist that the defense can't prepare for the cross-examination of Mr. Holmes, and that is why we ask that the court deny uh, all of the recently filed motions by the defense. This is not a spin. This is not an interpretation of the record. This is testimony, questions, and an official court record. A judge, though, declined to hear it, and the case moved forward. 
And after once again, weeks of spoken and written testimony, evidence, and questions, the case was about to be handed over to the jury. Closing arguments. And now you know it. We all know it. Stanley Liggins is guilty. The evidence leads you to that conclusion. You have the reports. They've been tested back then. They were tested in 2014. Not a single shred of the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of pieces of evidence analyzed by the DCI ties Mr. Liggins to this. It, the reason is because he, he didn't do it. It took the jury two days to come back with a guilty verdict. Days later, News 8 spoke with Jennifer's godmother, Mary Maxwell Rockwell, about the case. 10,445 days that we have been fighting this. She's up in heaven with, um, unfortunately, a lot of our detectives and uh, witnesses that have passed on. And I just feel like we had a big cheering squad up there. On May 30th, 2019, Liggins once again was sentenced to life in prison. At that hearing, he tried to get the case thrown out, asking for a new trial, but the judge denied it. Liggins is nearing his 60s, so I'm not sure if he will continue to fight for his freedom. The family never stopped fighting for justice, though. Jennifer's godmother says on the final day of trial, she knew the young girl was looking down on her and her family. And I don't think that Angel will ever stop looking down on them, especially as they try to find some peace.